always think, you know, without someone who's bred the horse that you ride, you wouldn't have the horse. So it's always nice to kind of know about the process and where the horse has come from, right? Welcome to the Dressage Connection podcast, where we are demystifying dressage training so your connection with your horse can flourish and you can start making sustainable momentum in your riding. I'm your host, Beth Carter, an Australian dressage trainer, coach, and the human behind BC Performance Horses with a passion for making correct dressage training understandable and accessible for every horse and rider. I believe that every horse benefits from dressage training, and I believe that it is possible to develop a horse that produces high quality work that scores well while still having an epic connection with your horse. I'm here to help you build foundations that will support you through the levels, own your role as your horse's trainer, and fall back in love with riding your horse. So put your foot in the stirrup and let's build that dressage connection. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting episode of the Dressage Connection podcast. Today, I am joined by dressage trainer and breeder, Caitlin Collis. Caitlin is the human behind Seven Oaks Farm, a boutique breeding and training program just outside of Brisbane with a focus on breeding Hanoverian warmbloods and facilitating the sale of superior dressage horses. Hey, Caitlin, how are you going? Good. Thank you, Beth. Really good now that you've introduced me and made me sound really fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to say a huge thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. It really does mean a lot to me. I just wanted to have you on here because you've been such a huge help to me breeding my own mare. And I feel like it's just such a difficult thing to navigate if you don't know what you're doing. I know I have just felt really overwhelmed by the whole thing and to be able to tap into your knowledge has just really been life-saving for me. You explain things so well and I just, and I knew when I started this podcast that I wanted to have you on because I know there are a lot of other people out there feeling as lost in the whole process as I have felt. And even to those of you out there who are listening to this episode and you're not interested in breeding, I think it's a really interesting thing for you just to learn a little bit about so that you know what has gone into your horse that you have to ride. Uh, Yeah, thank you, first of all, also for having me, Beth. Um, And thank you. Like, I am always more than happy to help you. Um, And I guess, you know, like you said, even for people who maybe aren't interested in necessarily breeding their horse. Yeah, so before we get into the breeding side of things, tell us about how you got here and what experiences did you have that made you want to breed your own horses? So I did come from a horsey family, Um, definitely nothing to do with warm bloods, but um, my parents did breed thoroughbreds. Um, So I did have a background in breeding horses, which was pretty fortunate. Uh, And then when I was a teenager and I wanted to focus more on dressage, um, I was really fortunate that um, to have parents with experience in breeding horses um, and they kind of just went at the time, you know, warm bloods and Hanoverians were really new to Queensland and Australia. Um, and they were sort of, you know, really expensive. And my parents looked at the price of what a four year old warm blood was going to cost. Um, and they went, well, okay, well, we can't afford that for our 14 year old daughter. Um, but you know, we've got the knowledge with breeding horses, um, and with the help of you know at the time we had like Canordi start and Cheryl O'Brien not too far from us 
um, yeah, that was kind of how we got into breeding, breeding the first one. Um, and so from there, I was really lucky that the first, the first foal was a filly. Um, and I rode her and she was a competition horse for me. And I decided to sort of keep her and she's been my foundation mare. Um, and then along that process, when I was 17, um, I had the good fortune of meeting one of the Hanoverian classifiers that came to Australia, um, who taught me a lot um, while he was here um, and invited me to go to Germany when I finished school um, and do sort of like a gap year program, really working as a working student um, at their stable in Germany, riding the young dressage horses um, and just learning a lot about the breeding program that they have there, um, which is just sort of focusing on breeding um yeah quality dressage horses uh, and they have about 40 to 50 foals a year um and that just totally opened my eyes I guess to um you know that was I guess oh, 16 or 17 years ago so um yeah totally opened my eyes to what goes into breeding dressage horses um and Hanoverians and I learned a lot um I'd only bred the one foal at the time and then I came back and yeah I was really interested in it and it really just grew from there. Awesome. It's just such an industry over in Germany. So that's so cool that you've had the opportunity to go over there and see what it's like over there. And that's just sparked that for you to be able to bring that back over here and just be a part of bringing that quality of breeding into Australia that we didn't really have like 15 years ago. Yeah, it was it was a really great experience. Um, yeah, since then I've obviously um, I've been really lucky to go back um, several times since then. But yeah, that was definitely the first kind of thing that, um, as a younger person, and like you said, you know, fifteen or sixteen years ago, it was different then, and it really just opened my eyes to what it what the industry was like over there. And um, yeah, it was a huge eye-opening experience. Um, and yeah, that sort of made me go, okay, I'm going to be a totally crazy person and I want to breed horses. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so um, tell us about your breeding program. How many mares do you have? Um, what are their breeding? And what are you looking for when you choose a stallion for each of them? Um, yeah, so I've got four broodmares that are specifically broodmares. Um, I've got the one that I mentioned before, which was the first uh, foal that I'd bred. She's a fisherman's friend thoroughbred mare. Um, she's, you know, being from a thoroughbred mare herself, she is quite like a long-legged modern type. Um, so, for instance, when I'm choosing a stallion for her, I want to choose something that maybe is, you know, a little bit stronger, a little bit more solid in the type. Um, she's got an amazing character. So, you know, it you can choose nearly anything now that I've bred her to. And because she's a little bit older, she's 16 this year, um, she's had six or seven foals now for me. And it's like you start to realise that no matter what you've bred her to, you can always they always look almost identical to her and have her amazing character. Um, so I've got her, I've got um, my competition horse that I retired a couple of years ago, Daisy. Um, she's by Don Gold from a Royal Hit Mare um, and she's actually due now any day to um, Total Diamond and she's already had a Vitalis. So she's a little bit of not as tall, a little bit heavier set. So for her, I look for um stallions that are a little bit more modern in type um 
she's a great mover, really good looking horse. So I'm never really too worried about um, improving the paces as much. Um, she's got good leg confirmation. Um, I really would love to improve her feet. So I bred her to Vitalis the first time around because um, I'd been, I'd seen Vitalis in Germany. I'd seen a lot of foals um, and a lot of riding horses. A lot had gone to Grand Prix. Um, and that's really important for me is like soundness. So um, yeah, that was, you know, something that I was looking to improve. And her first foal is two now and just has the most amazing, strong, sturdy feet. So that was um, really important to me. Um, I've got a Riverside mare, um, Ruby. So I've got her. Um, again, she's a lighter framed mare, so she's a little bit like the first mare. You can sort of breed her to something that's a little bit heavier and older fashioned and she always throws really elegant types. Um, and then I've got um, a recent addition. I brought a pony um, and I'm going to start to breed German riding ponies as well. I just wanted to sort of try something a little bit different. Um, so she's in fall to daily dancer. So those are the four um, designated brood mares. And then I have two um, younger riding horses as well that I'm taking embryos from. Um, so one is by Steadinger from a condo, condo um, Donahall mare. And the other one is um, by Follow Me, a first and ball son. And she's from an imported Johnson mare. So yeah, they're both. Um, they're just under saddle and hopefully going to have a good riding career. Um, and then from there, I've kept two more fillies that are just babies that I'll breed with eventually as well. One's by Iron and one's by Vitalis. So, um, yeah, I guess all up I've got eight, which is plenty. <laughs> um, eight. Yeah, eight is plenty. I'm, I don't want to keep any more for a while. Eight is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that yeah. sounds exciting. You've got a lot coming ahead for the future and yeah. um, just – a lot of nice babies coming by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, a lot to, of nice horses for riding as well. Um, in the last couple of years, I really wanted to have a big focus on like the mares and the mares had to have had a performance career um, and have been ridden. Um, so I really made a switch with the mares with that. Um, I think it's just something that for me personally is really important to me. So, um, yeah, I want the younger mares to to do something under saddle and it helps me a lot with choosing stallions for them. And I think, you know, if I was a buyer of foals and I have been a buyer before, um, it's really nice and it's important to see what you're going to get. And, um, you know, the, the mare is equally or if not more important than the stallion. So, yeah, I've just sort of chosen to go with mares that have done stuff and competed and you know what you're kind of going to get um, and you know how sound and how rideable they are. So, yeah, it's just what's important to me. Yeah, that's that's great because I think so many people just discount the mare and just go, oh, that's a nice stallion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, like you yourself with breeding a little bit and you're also a rider and, and myself too. Um, you just absolutely know what you're going to get so much more if you've yeah. ridden the mare, even if it's only to novice elementary, you know, you've started to yeah. put a little bit of pressure on the mare. You've taken her to competitions, you've ridden her off property. Um, and look, no horse is perfect. Absolutely. Not saying that your mares or my mares are perfect, yeah. um, but you know, they're quirks and it just helps you so much more to know, what you can breed with, how you can improve them. And, and you know, 
um, the, the ideal goal with breeding Hanoverians is that each generation you're improving on the mother. Um, and I just think if you haven't done, you know, you haven't ridden the mare, how can you know if you're improving on the right ability um, if you've started breeding with them at three or four and they've done nothing? So, um, yeah. yeah, that's in the last couple of years a big shift that I've made is just to try and, and keep the ones that I've ridden. Um, and hopefully it pays off um, and we see good improvements in the foals and especially in the rideability. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome because, yeah, like with Quinta, as you say, like I know exactly specifically what I'm looking for to improve with her and yeah. you just don't have that if, you know, if you don't ride them. Like you can yeah, see absolutely. the confirmation stuff but you don't have the personality, temperament stuff. You don't know exactly what you need to improve. Absolutely. And, you know, you want to breed a horse that, is going to go up the levels, yeah. um, not just something that, like, of course, a beautiful foal is ideal, um, yeah. but it's got to do more than look cute as a foal. Um, yeah. You know, I want to, like, first and foremost, I'm breeding the horses, you know, that I want to be able to ride and they have to suit me and my goals in life, just like yourself. Yeah. Um, and then the others will hopefully be able to be sold. And I mean, in an ideal world, they're meant to fund the ones that I keep. Um, I can tell you that doesn't really work, um, <laughs> but that's the ideal goal anyway, um, yeah. is that, you know, I can keep one out of every two or I can keep one out of every four or something. Um, yeah. But the, the ideal is that I can find some that I like and tick the boxes for me. Um, and, you know, the, the work ethic and the temperament and the soundness proven um, is, is just so important. And if you, yeah, you haven't done that, and I think the mare is at least 60%. So if you haven't done that with the mare, how can you know what you're even starting with? Yeah. Yeah, that's just such an important conversation. So thank you for bringing that into the podcast. So next question, how far ahead are you choosing stallions and buying semen? That's a really good question. Um, so last year um, after COVID, I hadn't been to Germany for a few years, but I had the good opportunity to go back to Germany. And I saw so many stallions that I, you know, well, a lot that I liked some that I didn't think that I had liked of videos. Um, but then when I met them in person, they really appealed to me. And some that I thought I was going to really like because they were well marketed here that, that actually when I met them, I crossed them off the list. But I think the, the big issue was that I liked a lot more than I didn't like. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, it was good because I got to see a lot of stallions, a lot of foal shows, chat with a lot of really well-respected breeders. Um, and it definitely opened my eyes to some new ideas. And so my list of stallions that I liked grew substantially. Um, and so when you say how far in advance, well, after going last year, I probably got a long enough list now to last me like four years for the number of mares that I've got so um I went last year before the breeding season but I'd already chosen the stallions for last year so then I had this year and I've already got next year's chosen as well um so yeah normally I mean normally um I don't really lock it in and buy the semen generally until like maybe June or yeah. July but um, I've pretty much got my mind made up well before Easter. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty. And at the moment, yeah, obviously I've already decided for this season and I'm pretty locked in as well for next season. I've already decided. Um, yeah. I, it definitely gives, for me, it definitely gives me an advantage 
um, if I've had the opportunity in the last couple of years to go and see the horses and um, see some of the progeny and things like that. Um, a bit like what we were saying with the mares and the rideability and seeing the foals in person. So I'll probably yeah, tend to go towards for the next year or two um, stallions that I did get to go and see. So, yeah, that does help. Awesome. So what stallions are you liking at the moment and why? <laughs> um, well, it's probably <laughs> something that I could go on about like forever and ever. <laughs> um <laughs> maybe top three yeah I know I could look at them um I could look at videos of stallions like well it's pretty much all year yeah um I as a rider I'd like to ride horses I've noticed that are probably like 25 to 50 percent with a little bit of Dutch blood um yeah. so I've been really drawn in the last couple of years to Vitalis and riding progeny by him um yeah. so yeah, and even his sons, um, which I think I've mentioned to you when you brought the idea to me about some of his sons. So like Valverde, um, Von and Zoo, he's a Vitalis florist count. Um, and I think, you know, people will still be drawn to using Vitalis for a few years while a lot of his progeny are going at Grand Prix. Um, I've never been a fan of breeding directly to Totalist, but I'm really liking a lot of his sons at the moment I think you know he's obviously producing a lot of Grand Prix horses and I think it's going to be a line that's um producing FEI horses for quite a while to come um so I think just in general that line um is going to be pretty popular for a while um I really like Skyline I think he's going to be really popular um his sire St. Shufro looks really good with um Nana Merrill at Grand Prix now he's not available to us so I think Skyline he looks really rideable um and he looks great other than that I'm a really big lover of the F line um in general super rideable fantastic elasticity great canter and I think Pretty much all the ones that I've ridden have been good enough quality for professionals but willing enough in their character for amateurs and that's hard to find in most other bloodlines. So, um, yeah, I really like Foundation, Floris Count. Um, we met First Toto last year when we went to Germany, so he's on my list. Um, so, yeah, I would say probably all of those. It's more than three, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Awesome. Um, so talk us through the insemination process. How does all that work for those of you who've never been through it before? Um, so for me, I would start I start when um, with taking the mare and getting a culture first. Um, the horse does need or mare needs to be in season. Um, so first of all, a culture um, is basically where they're doing like a swab of the uterus to see if the mare has any infections. Um, and people always say to me, oh, she doesn't have an infection because she's so healthy. And I'm like, yeah, but it's just a really, can be like a really low grade uterine infection. You're not going to know that it's, your horse isn't going to present as sick um, on the outside and they can have them just slightly simmering away there for years and especially when you use frozen semen um, there's a lot of extenders and chemicals used in the frozen semen to keep it going and last for years um, and then if they have a low-grade uh, infection that will really react they will really react with the frozen semen and they're not going to take um, and they're just going to get like really unhealthy reactions and they'll have to get flushed a lot afterwards um, and that just ends up costing your fortune at the vet. So the first thing I would do is take them for a culture. They need to be in season for that, get the culture results back um, and then either treat them based on the results of the culture or if they're clean, then on the next cycle um, I would 
breed them. Um, generally, like I live fairly close to the vets, so I can take my horses back and forward. Um, so it doesn't cost me a fortune in adjustment, but obviously the other really important thing is to find a really good repro vet. Um, you know, you can have a great lameness vet or a great performance horse vet, but that doesn't make them a specialist in being a reproductive vet. Um, and especially if you're breeding, um, you know, with frozen semen, you do need someone who that's their specialty. So there is a lot of, you know, it's like an art form. Um, I would say, and if I know people that don't have a specialist, at it and they just will waste a lot of time and money um, doing it the hard way so that would be my other piece of advice um, even out of this whole podcast is that would be my piece of advice I've learned that the hard way a long time ago um, so then yeah after you've done the culture you know that the horse is healthy um, then yeah you take them to the vet they wait usually until the mare has just ovulated there's a lot of scanning usually sort of every two to four hours um, and then they inseminate the mare Normally, they will then um, scan them again after that and flush them for one or two days afterwards. Um, and then, yeah, you take them back 14 days later and hopefully you will have a 14-day positive pregnancy. If you're really lucky, you might get it on the first go, but I wouldn't say that's normal. <laughs> but, yeah, if you're lucky, you might. Um, and then, yeah, 21 days you get uh, or I get a heartbeat scan. 30 days is the next scan and then a 45 days is the last scan um yeah that's that's pretty much it sounds easy but it's um it's probably a little bit more longer and complicated than that so what does life look like for your mares when they're in foal like what are they being fed you've just answered how often they're doing scans um are there anything is there anything else that you do to care for them while they're pregnant yep so we um in Queensland and New South Wales, there's obviously, um, like, you might have heard of, like, the hairy caterpillars. They live in wattle trees especially. Um, so they can cause abortions in mares. So we specifically, that's a really big issue. So we specifically take the mares back at least around the five months and we scan them again just to make sure um, it's around the four and a half to five months that the mares start to develop a placenta. Um, and we check them for placentitis and we, we measure their placenta um, and check the fetal heart rate and things like that. Um, so I have lost a couple of foals to placentitis and then I had a, another couple of mares um, that I've had to maintain on a lot of um, drugs throughout their pregnancy due to placentitis. So that's something I've started in the last couple of years is just scanning them a little more sort of midway through their pregnancy um, just to see if they are going to get placentitis if I need to sort of catch it earlier. Um, so that's a big one. Um, the second one is that we removed all the wattle trees from our property so that the caterpillars didn't want to come and live here. And I would say that, like, that's a huge one. If you want to breed and you want to breed valuable horses and you live, like, around, yeah, Queensland, New South Wales, you really have to look for um, the caterpillar nests. There's two times of the year um, that they uh, where you can get rid of them. Um, so, yeah, that's a really big management issue for us. Um, other than that, yeah, they live in um, pairs. Um, once they're weaned, they enjoy a nice life. Um they're really spoiled, my brood. <laughs> um, 
Um, if they need shoes, they're shod. Um, one of my mares has Queensland itch a little bit, so she's rugged. Um, we feed bio mare, so, um, but one of the mares, um, she's a bit of a, like, she's a good doer, so she can't really have bio mare. So she's on Easy Sport um, and Sen Oil. Um, but, yeah, no, they are very well spoilt. Um, we've had our soils tested um and so they're fed according to that they're also supplemented with conkey cell grow um and copper and zinc um and yeah they're fed twice a day and then they just get heaps and heaps of grassy loose and hay um yeah so they are very well spoiled and well looked after and yeah they just hopefully they live a nice life (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like they do yeah. In the lead up to the foals being born, is there anything special that you're doing to prepare? Um, so we bring them into um I've got like foaling down yards, um, which have uh like foal mesh and then uh quite a large, like double sized stable. Um, and then we've got lights and cameras on them. Um, so I bring them up probably about maybe 10 days or so before I think they're going to fall um, and pop the mares in there and just sort of start to keep an eye on them. Um, And then once I sort of think that they're a few days before they're going to fall, I start with the um, testing the mares milk on the pool strips. So you can see usually that gives me a pretty good indication um, of if they're going to fall in the next day or two. And then, yeah, but yeah, other than that, no, they just, yeah, they come into the foliards and, yeah, just keep an eye on them. But, yeah, haven't touched wood, missed one yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then once the foal's born, what do you do with them? Like what do their first few days and their first few weeks look like? Yep, so we keep the um, we keep the mares and foals into the stable at night and then in the like falling down sort of area yards um, in the day for usually about two weeks. But it really depends, you know, on how their legs are and how strong and balanced they are. There's been a couple of foals where they've been, you know, when they're down on their bumpers because they're born like a little bit early or they're a bit like long-legged and unbalanced. Um, and so they've had to sort of go into the stable for a few hours in the day just to be locked up as well, just to let them sort of rest because otherwise they run around too much um, in the bigger area. So it just depends on the foal. But, yeah, usually that's kind of the routine that we do, um, just like lock them up at night out in the day for two weeks. Um, and then once they're about two weeks old, we Find that the mares are a bit more settled, the foals are stronger, and they're ready to just go out 24-7 in the paddock. Um, when they're first born, um, when they're sort of around that 24 hours old, we get the vets to come run the IgG blood test, check their white cell count, um, and that just gives us a good overview of how they are when they're first born. We know if they're um, need any plasma if they you know have a low white cell count and they have an infection brewing or they might be getting septic or anything like that before they sort of present as being unhealthy um, check their heart rate um, and sometimes they can look really healthy or they don't seem listless but you just never know what's going on with the blood work um, so yeah we just get all of that done Um, And then if there's any sort of advice that the vets need to give us on, you know, their legs or locking them up for a little bit longer, like sometimes just even locking them in the stable for three days can make a big difference. Um, 
just always good to get an opinion on that and then yeah from two weeks they just go out in the paddock all the time and start running around and often with the other foals as well and they love it awesome how much handling are you doing with them right from the start um I think quite a bit but without overdoing it um you know, you want the foals to want to be with you. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't say it's intensive, but, um, yeah, just little bits every day um, yeah. so that they're sort of curious and they want to be around you. And then when they're roughly sort of three or four weeks old, they get their first um, farrier trim. So probably about a week before that, I start just practising picking up their feet and things. Um, but usually the mares are rebred. So that's, again, when their mares are so, uh, foals are usually three or four weeks old. So um, it is, I guess, around that three to four weeks that they're going on and off the float. They're going to the vet clinic. They're getting their first um, foot trim. So, yeah, around that age, they're starting to get a little bit more handling. Um, and then I don't do, like, intensive blocks of handling where I'm, like, locking them up for a week and handling them a lot. It's just – it's little bits, you know. You might yeah. be feeding them and you'll be like, oh, I've got time right now to spend a little bit of time with them. Just little bits. Um, yeah a few times a week and then yeah by the time you sort of get to weaning you realize that you've got a really well-rounded individual um our foals all sort of like can lead really well go on and off the float um get hosed wear a rug um just be like nice little individuals by the time they're weaned um so yeah I don't think it's anything too intensive it's just basic stuff yeah, no, but it's good because you just take the time to do it slowly so it doesn't become yeah. a big deal. It's just, you know, you don't have Never to lock them up and, like, wrestle them down because they know they know how to be handled right from yeah, the start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, never overwhelming them, never want to argue with them, but just want to, them to know that they have to trust people and be confident around us but without yeah. being overly confident. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so what age are you weaning your babies uh, they're weaned around six months. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a bit less, depending on how they're going. It's nice for them to have a weaning buddy if I can. So if one is five and a half months and one's six and a half months, then that's okay. Um, we do gradual weaning with the foals. So it does take me about 10 days to two weeks to sort of do it. Um, so that involves me putting the mares into the paddock next door and leaving the foals in the paddock that they're used to. So I really like the process and in sort of like the eight or ten years that I've been doing it I haven't really had anyone stress anyone run I've not had any foals run up and down and call out or anyone sort of show any signs of yeah getting sweaty or um, separation anxiety which has been great and since I've started doing it I haven't had any mares um, end up with mastitis which has also been fantastic Um, so yeah just put the mares next door start out Um, at breakfast time for a couple of hours and then every day just increase it a little bit more and a little bit more until suddenly it's overnight and 24 hours and everyone's happy so yeah that's how we do it that's great that's a really good way to do it so let's fast forward in the baby's life if you keep a baby until they're like three years old and let's just talk unstarted for the sake of this conversation what does their life look like up until this point They have lived, I would have thought it's a fairly basic life, but um, again, I don't generally do like where they come in and they get intensive blocks of handling, but I do 
like to just do little bits with them regularly. Um, So, you know, after they're weaned, they have probably lived with another, whether it's, it just depends what I've got, whether it's another weanling or they might've lived with a yearling um, for six months, but they still get, you know, handles they get a little bit of leading lessons um they still get brought up to the top of the stables you know once or twice a month and just get like reminded of their manners and things like that um and then once they sort of turn one I sort of switch it around like my yearling at the moment she's living with my retired 19 year old because she got a little bit bossy actually um with the older horse and now she's sort of getting put in her place kind of um with the retired <laughs> horse um and yeah she's learning about wearing a rug again and a fly mask and things like that um I try not to let them get too set in one paddock or matey so like every one to two months I'll move them around to a different paddock and a different herd or a different broodmare lives with them and things like that um and it's just it's yeah it's never bringing them up and doing really intensive blocks with them and then turning them out and bushing them again it's just yeah it's just like might be once a week or twice a fortnight or something just bringing them up and doing little bits and pieces with them um and then yeah it actually it works well for me like recently my two-year-old um had to go to the vet and um was just a side note she had like a a small lump growing in her eye and she had to get um a general anesthetic to get it biopsied and I was thinking oh my gosh like it's true and she's you know she's unbroken and probably like 16 one hands and never been anywhere and I don't know how this is going to go taking her but she was fantastic and the vets were like oh she's so good like coming here and staying overnight and getting this general anesthetic and getting all these things put in her eye and then I had to stable her for two weeks afterwards and do all the drops but she was actually fine because you know in her two years I have um yeah just moved her around and done things with her and brought her up and left her up here in the yards for a couple of days and then put her back again and she's never really got um, in a position where I guess she's got set in one routine I guess she's spent her whole life going okay my mum's actually crazy and is always moving me around <laughs> um so then she just went on the float one day and she's like oh my mum's crazy we're going somewhere <laughs> um but so, yeah, I love it, that it approach well. though yeah <laughs> it works well for me yeah yeah it just yeah. creates just a well-rounded person who can just yeah is all right doing whatever that you don't just take them out out of their routine one day and they're like panicking yeah yeah the farrier says like oh we can just drive around and trim them in the paddock but um and it would be easier but then I'm like no because it's good once a month they learn to get led away from their friends and they learn to come up and stand in the cross ties and from the get-go they learn that that's what's the expectation of them so that by the time they are three in a riding horse they don't feel like oh my god this is yeah a big crazy deal it's just like oh it's another day in the life right um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a bit more work maybe, but then when you get to three, it's a lot less work. Um, yeah. So that's what works for me anyway. Yeah, because you're just developing that foundation there. You're not, you know, well, I yep. think it would be a lot more work if you did just put them out bush and then you brought them in and had to like completely start handling them from scratch every now and then. Like that just creates yep. way more work. A hundred percent. Yeah. You and I both know that from riding other people's horses that do that, it's a lot more work, especially once mm-hmm. they're like 16, three hands and 600 kilos. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. But yeah, on average, getting into a bit of a more down the line question here, 
If nothing goes wrong, how much does it cost you to get a foal on the ground? Well, this was a really good question. So um, I had to go back and I averaged over, um, well, I had to go over three seasons. So this year and then the last two years before that, which was tricky because when you said when nothing goes wrong, I was like, uh, when was that? When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we have to be really real so that if yeah. anyone's listening to this, they don't think that, oh, that happens because that doesn't really happen very often. But um. Yeah. So I averaged it over, this was over about eight foals. Um, so I thought it was a pretty good average. It costs um, roughly 16000 to get it, like, landed on the ground. Um, yeah, so that's that would be a pretty rough average. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's a, I think that's really important for people to know because people go, oh, my God, foals are so expensive to buy or my three-year-old is so expensive to buy. But yeah they don't take into account that this is the cost that's just gone into getting the foal on the ground and that's if nothing drastic has gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, literally. People say, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to breed one. It'll be so much cheaper. And I'm like, okay, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you're not guaranteed what it's going to turn out like. Yeah, and, I mean, that doesn't include, like, anything, like, building a foal yard or any property maintenance like that's none of that that's literally just like the vet fees yeah. and looking after the mare until mm. the day the foal's born so yeah. like an if adjustment you're, if uh, you're adjusting yeah yeah exactly so um yeah I mean like I've got a couple of friends that this year um they bred their first foals um a little bit like you like I sort of helped them a little bit and they were like oh my gosh I have to you know set up the foal yard and all these things and I was like yep yep and helping them like oh where do you buy this um you know this and that and then they were doing it and they're like wow this is actually so much work for just one foal like I don't intend to do this again and I'm like well yeah it is a lot like it's expensive and it's a lot like it's different if you're going to write the cost off over you know you're going to get 10 foals but yeah yeah it is a lot for sure definitely yeah so then this is another question that I messaged you about not that long ago um like registering foals if you've bred a Hanoverian foal or a warm blood foal um what is the process of getting the foal registered and when you when should you be doing it so um registering the foals so the foals are normally registered while they're on their mum um and the um that's, yeah, that's usually at the start of the year. So if your foal was born in October, usually you would do the registration process. It's normally about Christmas time. Um, and um, so, okay, so the process is you've got two options with pretty much every breed society with um, registering your foal. You can either do it um, in person so you can get your foal assessed and have it registered that way and get feedback on the foal and that makes your foal eligible for awards like a gold foal or a silver foal or an elite foal. Or you, if you don't want to take your foal somewhere or have someone come and assess your foal, you can just do it via a DNA pack in the post. So you just get your foal microchipped and you take a sample of the hair and send it off um, and then you can just do it that way. So, yeah, there's pretty much every breed society has two options like that. Yeah, it's really simple. Awesome. What advice do you have for someone wanting to breed their first horse, like the first time breeding? So. Um, I think I thought about this. I was like, advice would be think about why you're doing it. 
um, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Like everyone will have really individual needs and answers as to why you're doing it. Um, like are you reading it just because you sentimentally love the mare? Um, are you doing it because you want another riding horse? Um you know, have a good think about why you're doing it. Um, that would be my first question. Um, if you have the knowledge or someone to support you and help you, I guess, or someone who's knowledgeable to help you with it. Um, the third thing is like, it is expensive. Things don't always go right. And according to plan, like to set everything up the way that you want to do it and to maintain the mare if she was to get sick or if the foal gets sick, like neonatal support at a vet hospital is really expensive. Um, so if you can truly afford it versus actually just buying a foal um, or a yearling or something that's already on the ground, um, like you sort of mentioned before with the cost is that, yeah, you know, with breeding a foal, I guess the costs are a little more spread out, but in the end, um, you're at least if you buy a foal, you are guaranteed to sort of get what you want and you know what you're getting. Um, so I guess there would be that. Um, otherwise, my main piece of advice would be start with a really good mare. It was the advice that I was given with a long time ago. Um, and I think it was really good advice. Um, you know, the mare is 60% of what you get when you're breeding um at least and i think if you whether you're just going to breed one horse for yourself to be a future riding horse or you want to you know start a small breeding program and go from there um whether it's your own riding horse that you're retiring or you're setting out to buy a broodmare invest in the best mare that you can afford because yeah she is going to give everything of herself to that foal potentially so if you're not satisfied with her and you wouldn't take a carbon copy of her then she's not going to be suitable I guess as your broodmare so um yeah that would be my probably main piece of advice is start with the absolute best mare that you can um make sure that she is registered has a really good character um and has good confirmation that you're willing to have passed on yeah, that would be my best advice. Next question. What advice do you have for someone buying a foal or a under three-year-old horse or a young horse to bring along themselves? Mm, really good question. Um, lots of advice. <laughs> um, if you number one is if you don't have um experience looking especially at foals, because you can ride a lot of horses, but it is like looking at foals is a bit of a unique situation. So if you don't have experience for looking at foals, get someone in your corner to help you before you make a decision because, you know, how a foal moves and how a foal looks compared to how it might when it's four can be a little bit different. So that would be my first advice, whether it's a coach or someone who's an experienced breeder, get them to help you. Um Again, I hate to go on about the mare, but, you know, she is important. So um, look at her breeding. Is she registered? Look at her character. Um, the last couple of people who have come to buy foals from me, I was really impressed that they actually spent a lot of time with the, the mother of the foal, and that was really important to them. And that actually meant a lot to me. Um, 
the temperament and the character of my mares is really important. And I wouldn't breed from a mare that was a little bit nasty or flighty or anything. But so I was confident about that. But it was really nice to see that that was important to the buyers of the foal as well. Um, and they really loved, they loved the mares and that was, yeah, that kind of sold them on the foal. So as a buyer, I think, yeah, don't just buy the foal. Look at the character of the mare. Is she nice? What does she like to brush? What does she like to lead? Ask ask the breeder, like, can you spend a little bit of time with her? Um, and if if the mare is a bit nasty or she's a little bit funny, that would, that for me, that would put me off um the foal um if she has funny feet or doesn't have the best leg conformation things like that um again look at the breeders you know how, how are their facilities things like that you know you are if it's a foal you're going to have to leave that foal there for six months um and so you know you, i guess you could either ensure the foal but again you want to mitigate your risk um so just you know common sense things like that um and another thing that you could look at is you know um with them any horses that you buy obviously it's easy to look up results that the stallions progeny has had but any other you know results from that breeder or the mares and things like that and that goes not just for a foal but a two-year-old or an unstarted three-year-old as well um yeah it's just sort of doing your research and things like that um, you can sort of see a horse's work ethic and character. I think if the mares produce any other horses that are out there doing things under saddle, um, you know, social media is great for things like that. You can contact the people that have bought um, horses from that breeder and ask them if they're satisfied with the purchase. So, yeah, that's the sort of things that I've done in the past when I've made purchases. Yeah. Awesome. That's really good advice. So that's the end of my big questions that I have for you but I just kind of to finish it off want to ask you a few rapid fire questions um and just answer them with the first thing that comes to the top of your mind <laughs> yep <laughs> so riding or coaching riding mares geldings or stallions mares riding indoor or outside outside training or competing training summer or winter summer horses with bling or no bling Definitely bling. Mornings or evenings? Mornings. Tea or coffee? <laughs> coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite saddle? Oh, a keep. Favourite riding pants? Oh, pick her. Favourite horse to ride? Oh, I had a really nice Forest Camp gelding. A, yeah, a really nice horse. Nice. Favourite test to ride? I haven't ridden any of the new tests, but other than that, it was the 5.3. Awesome. Favourite boot brand? Mm, De Niro's. Same. <laughs> Favourite spirits? Uh, my, um, uh, I think they're the MDC Ultimates. Favourite helmet? Tech. Nice. Who inspires you as a rider? Mm, can I have two? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm super inspired by Hayley Beresford. I did six months for her as a working student. So she's still a really good friend of mine. Um, yeah, really inspired by her even before I ever met her. Someone that obviously worked for Isabel Worth, went to represent Australia at the Olympics, but also, um, before all of that overcame breast cancer, um, at the age of 30. And just think that's like a huge inspiration um yeah. also just an amazing person um and secondly I am 
really super obsessed with Catherine DeFour. So, yeah, those two for me. Awesome. Very nice choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could train with one person in the world, who would it be? Oh, it'd have to be Catherine now because I've already trained with Haley. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. If you could ride one horse in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, that's hard. I really want to ride Skyline to be. Yeah, cool. If you could breed with one stallion in the world, dead, alive or gelded, who would it be? Well, that's hard too. I'd really like a baby Cassidy, Catherine DeFore's horse. So I know he's, he's gelded and everything, yeah, but, but yeah. He looks that would so be just rideable and He sweet. just looks, yeah, I know he was nearly going to be the horse to ride, but I was like, oh. But, yeah, I think he just looks like the epic, like the most awesome horse, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. As a trainer, what is something you wish everyone would do with their horses? Handle them more when they're younger in general, just like teach their horses, you know, not just focus on being riding horses. Yeah, do more like honest groundwork with them. Yeah, like, I love you know, that. It's not about, yeah, it's not about flogging them. It's not yeah. about, it, but it's, about it's not about understand. letting Absolutely. It's about yeah. understanding, trust, communication, um it's not letting them get to a point where they are unsafe and you feel like you've got to bully them it's yeah it's about like yeah mutual respect and trust and um yeah yeah, that absolutely starts much earlier not waiting until they're four or five and you're already you're already ready to go out and do a novice test and then the horse is stressed so for me that's like an issue that I struggle with every single day and makes my job really hard and yeah is actually a big reason why I breed my own horses yeah (laughs) yeah I completely get that I I feel the same way if you could change one thing about the dressage world to make it a better place for the horses what would you change I think that people I don't know how to word this I think that people push, how do you say it? People push their horses beyond their horse's happiness or physical capabilities. I don't think that's just a dressage thing. Yeah. For their own ego. I love that. If you could give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Learn to let go earlier or say no sooner. (laughs) Emma's was the same answer. Oh, (laughs) was it? Say no. Yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's so hard. And I think especially as horse people and people pleasers, it's the hardest thing of working with animals. But Mm. you just want to do everything you can for the horses and then Mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to set those boundaries. Yeah. Let go. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If you could be known for one thing, what would it be? This was really, really difficult. I th- thought about this a lot, but I stopped thinking about it best. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, I had a lot, but then I was like, I don't really know what's. Um, I want to be someone that bred their own horses and trained them to Grand Prix. Awesome. I love that. Before we finish up, I opened up the platform to my Instagram followers and they had a couple of great questions for you. Do you mind answering them? No, go for it. Awesome. So Emerson wanted to know what are the essential features you're trying to put into your breeding program? Yeah. Um, So I really want to produce horses that are 
sound and have the right work ethic and right ability uh, to go to FEI. I mean, not every horse can obviously make it to Grand Prix, but at least to go to Prix St. George. Um, so that have correct confirmation, um, nice looking, sure. But yeah, they're just good mechanics, sound and really good work ethic. So those are the things that are really important to me. There's things that you can make, um, like handling them and all of those kind of things, of course. But yeah, those are the foundations that are really important to me. Awesome. And Steph wanted to know what strategies help you build resilience in the very unforgiving breeding world? Alcohol and banging my head against the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Learning from my mistakes, I would say. Um, Honestly, I would actually just say I don't know if things build resilience, to be honest, because that you're always, if you work with horses, I have to say that there will always be a time when something happens and you're challenged again, like it doesn't matter if you're, if it's with breeding horses or not, there is always something where you're challenged. But I have to say it's finding the good in things and that's like overcomes the hard times or the things that are difficult. Um, and for me is like people say to me all the time, you know, how can you sell them? They're so beautiful. Don't you want to keep them all? But when someone buys a foal and they come and meet it and they tell you like all of their dreams for that horse, honestly, my heart just bursts. Or when someone buys the horse and they get it broken in and they send me a video of their first ride on that horse, or when someone is out there competing and they place it dressage with the stars, like, wow, that is just absolutely incredible. And like, you know, I can't do that with four four-year-olds every single year. I can't dedicate that amount of time and energy and money to eat every single one of them. That just makes me so incredibly proud um, and there's no better feeling. So, yeah, I guess that is what gives you then resilience in the hard times. Yeah. I've got goosebumps just listening to that answer. Aww. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for doing this for me and joining us on the Dressage Connection podcast. It just really means a lot to me and to my listeners that you've taken the time to share your expertise. Um, For anyone looking for you online, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me on Facebook, on my business page, Seven Oaks Farm, or they can find me on Instagram at the same at Seven Oaks Farm. And I'm happy to help or they can reach out. And yeah, hopefully soon we'll have lots of cute foal pictures to share as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. And everyone, make sure you go check Caitlin out on her social media because she's got some beautiful horses, beautiful babies. You also have some lovely horses for sale. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Dressage Connection podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and leave a rating, review, or share a screenshot of this episode to your stories to help more people find their Dressage Connection. You can always reach out to me on Instagram with any questions about anything we've covered on the podcast, your own writing journey, or just to say hi at bc.performancehorses. You can also get the latest info about how you can work with me on my website, bcperformancehorses.com. 
I can't wait to hang out with you in the next episode. But in the meantime, go on and build that beautiful dressage connection.